First of all, I would like to express my thanks to the team for having me on as the poet in residence of the Textual Strand. It has been an incredible experience and in quite selfish ways for me uh, because I'm currently working on a collection of poetry that uses archival material and trying to write about, and it's a family archive as well, so trying to write about your family, trying to write about sometimes troubling things from the past, it can be really, really tricky. And the conversations that I've had as part of this residence with my fellow poets, with the other academics, have been incredibly useful in getting me into almost being through my second year, uh, with just the last bit to go in the third year, plus writing up time. Um, so thank you very much for having me. So I was poet in residence of the textual strand um, of the, of the programme. And what that really focused on was one particular day where I was working at the Ashmolean Museum, um, taking part in an object handling day. So what we were looking at were objects that are used to commemorate, that have been used to, to reconcile, um, and learning how to engage with those objects and the ways in which they carry out those functions. Um, so we looked at, um, in particular, objects from the Haida people, who are a native population from the northwest of Canada. And we were looking at the, the totem poles that were made as souvenirs to, to be sold when um, the actual making of totem poles was outlawed and it was banned. But you were allowed to do it as long as you could sell it afterwards. That was fine. Um, we also looked at peace diaries. So those were from, they were being sent from high schools near Mount Fuji in Japan after World War II, and they were being sent to schools in Vista. Um, but for me, the material that was most striking were photograph albums that related to the Benin massacre and to the British punitive expedition um, to Benin. So there's two different accounts about what happened during the punitive expedition. The British one, or the British one at the time, was the British tried to make a trading treaty. They sent a party to make the treaty, and they were all killed. So the British then sent in 1,200 marines and wiped out the entire city. And one thing they found when they were in that city were what have become known as the Benin Bronzes, and they are now it's probably about 60% of what was originally in the city are now in the British Museum. And what the Ashmolean holds is some photograph albums that narrate that expedition, really, from the perspective of soldiers, because cameras were just starting to be, to be able to, people were just starting to be able to afford them. So soldiers were going and taking photographs, quite a few of them. So what I'm going to do, everything I'm going to speak about today, basically is either something that relates to that expedition, and there's one piece that relates to the Haida people. And I'm going to start with a blog post I wrote um, for the Torch website, because it gives some context that I think will be quite useful, and then I'll crack on with the actual poetry. Okay. So, the event of a photograph. The album sits open on a foam bookrest. Each page carries six small photographs mounted on thick bottle green card. The edges of each image are sharp, 
and each one is saturated with shadow and light, a white line of horizon, a canvas tent flap, men in shirt sleeves and military trousers shielding their eyes against the sun. The album, the curator tells us, documents the 1897 British punitive expedition to Benin, a military response to the massacre of British troops a year earlier. The expedition seems to unfold photograph by photograph. Here are troops outside city walls. Here they are marching, and now, here they are again, leaning their rifles against the rubble of the broken houses and smiling into the camera. There is the story of what happened in Benin, and here are the photographs that illustrate it. But today, the curator says, we're going to think about what histories might be written if we solely used material culture. Opened in 1884, the Pitt Rivers Museum is home to over half a million archaeological and ethnographic objects from all over the world. Underpinning the museum's collecting policy is the idea that all accessions should have perceived ethnographic value, that they should, in some way, speak to questions of society and culture. This idea of ethnographic value was often part of the reason why collections like the Benin album were offered to the museum. Families donating archives for the information they held on pre-colonial West Africa. But what exactly, the curator asks us, makes up social and cultural data in photographs? To hold one of the album's photos in your hands means holding on to two things. The object itself, but also all the object biographies that come packed around it like sawdust and packing nuts. If we dust the biographies away for a moment, what do we have? Thick cards, heavy bindings, image after image arranged into sections, a carefully curated collection of physical materials that regardless of narrative signify intention. One of the photographs in the album makes reference to the practice of human sacrifice in Benin. While this was one of the moral justifications for the punitive expedition, one of the traces of ethnographic material, perhaps more interesting for me as a poet is the way the album's materiality communicates a need on the part of the expeditionary force to commemorate this fact, as much as the fact itself. Photographs always talk about relationships. Like poems, they draw on the conventions of their tradition to generate their meaning. They imply an audience, they refer to a point of fixed time inside the photograph and the fluid point of time in which they are viewed. Trying to locate the event of the photograph, its social and cultural data, multiple sites come into view. The punitive expedition, the moment of photographic capture, the curation of images into an album, the offering of the album to the museum and today are looking at the image a life cycle of meaning emerges, where the multiple events of the photograph flicker inside a single material space. The album's ethnographic value lies less in the facts contained inside each photograph than in the dialogue that surrounds and constitutes them, less in the idea of human sacrifice than in the need to hold the idea of it fixed on the page for everyone to see. I see the act of holding, I see the desire for audience, 
and I wonder who will one day see me and my part in this conversation. So, those are my thoughts um, after standing around this enormous white table in the bowels of the Ashmolean Museum. Um, and one thing that really struck me was the feeling of encountering text, the feeling of engaging with it. And when, when textuality is materiality, the texts are photos, they are, they are um, objects, they, they don't necessarily have language on them. You can hear my language, but what I want you to be able to do is to engage physically with some of that language and some of that sense of textuality. So, what I've done is So, I was talking about the way that this project has impacted what I'm doing in my PhD at the moment. And one of the major things it's done is um, it's looking at that desire to commemorate by making something fixed and solid. Um, the desire for solidity, and there's always the thing that slips away underneath that desire for solidity, and hopefully, once we jump into this poem, some of that will come through. Uh, so these blackout poems, these are all taken from The City of Blood, um, which is about Benin, written by Commander R.H. Bacon, who was the intelligence officer for the expedition. The rafters were still glowing. We had dined well. In the archive. When the door closes, we let the quiet of the archive settle around us. The chilled air from the bales of frozen film comes to a stop, and the room fills with the hum of the corner unit rinsing the air of the contaminant on our clothes, the proteins in our breath. The curator lays the album on the foam cradle. We stand shy of each other and cautious, like friends invited to a christening, not knowing where to stand or what to do with our arms, not wanting to let our voices or breath drop and break this silence. The curator begins with the facts. Mr. Phillips reported how the Juju city reeked of human blood. Sir Harry mustered a force of 1,200 marines. Mr. Bacon had reason to believe enough ivory would be found to pay all expenses incurred removing the king from his stool. There are various kinds of violence the boot in the mouth, the ring of bruises on an upper arm, the way each fact slips so neatly aside the next, like a horse's bit holds down the tongue. My friend Ilya says the human scream is the last stage of lyricism. If that's true, this album is maybe what happens when that eye is ended. The silence that lends each photograph, each photograph its voice, its volume, the white page that bears the administrator's mark. 
In the archive, the curator closes the album. We move on to the next object. I could get accustomed to bronzes, ivory. Photograph number 14. It is a photo of a man in uniform. He kneels in front of a spill of bronzes and cast metal plaques, tending to them with tissue paper and string. Tell me, how do you start to tie the knot of reconciliation when only one of you has hands? The album. Consciousness is nothing jointed. It flows, William James once said. Each moment of rest or flight tied into the body of the main, pummeling forward. And the gaps, the turning into sleep, the lost time cannot break this community of self. It flows. In the album, history moves through and around each picture. But there is a gap inside. Listen to the paper crackle, to the soft turn of the card, to the sound of photo brackets holding history straight. Listen to the page and the silence that doesn't run but stands holding itself out to you. Hear it hanging from the noose looped over the okoro tree and the boy beside it shielding his eyes from the sun. If you cannot hear it, Listen harder. White gloves, totem pole. When a native community touches its missing objects like a totem pole, words come out from where they've been lost. Haptic receptors fire. The sounds come back. And when they don't, new words are made out of the traces, leaving the language fuller, marking the gaps. I pull on the white cotton gloves, free of acid and colour, to read the object by touch, wood carved into claws, wings, teeth. Inside the gloves, my fingers grow damp, fumble on thick seams. I feel the acid rising inside me, imprinted, packed into every pore, the violence of my sweat and salt. No matter the care I take, I cannot get away from the damage built into my body by habit. I wear clean cotton gloves and leave the imprint of myself all over them, letting the whiteness absorb the stain. Photographs number 31 and 32, 33 and 34. There is a body hanging from the Okoro tree. Strange how the word for a person changes in the second it takes to kick over a stool. I do not know what they did with him after. The last three photographs are gone. And when I hold them to my ear, I think they whisper something about shame. Or maybe that's the rhythm of my thoughts as they rise to fill the enormous white page. I never could handle silence. 
Parks Road. This morning, the light pulls off the spines and struts of the buildings. It is one of those mornings between autumn and winter. The trees bare, the paths licked with frost, and the air over the gravel keen as a blade. You need your sunglasses, and for a moment you can't see which is the bike lane and which is the path. You listen through the light for the ping and clack of gears. You tried listening to the archive this morning. You wanted to write a poem translating its silences into the space between words. You wanted to pin the chatter of the photos and the battle ledgers around it. Hold that violence to the light. What does that make you in this? A witness? An ally? You remember Claudia Rankin when she said, no one can be an ally as long as they're trying to be a white man. In this kind of light, this kind of morning, there are so few shadows to rest in. Only those you make with your cupped hand to filter the sun as it insists upon your bare face. You take on writing jobs and get paid an exposure. You teach at a university for a fixed fee that works out at £2.17 an hour. You take photos and post them to Twitter, and each time you do, you feel a little taller for a moment. You feel your hips get narrower, and sometimes even forget about the fact you take up space. That quality of mind. You've pinned pinned back the parts that slop over, pared back, spoke less, worked harder, stopped writing about love and wrote about history. You want to stand and feel clean and hard, like the light on the metal spine of the museum, this almost winter light that erodes and scours, but under its weight, you become the object again. The bare trees, the frost, the air over gravel. You bring your hands to your mouth and taste the acid inside them, the ambition of your body, the complicity in your fingers, inside your words. Believe me, the future is mine. Well, I got up here without tripping over, so that's good. Good evening, everybody, and thank you for coming. I'm going to share three of my poems tonight. We've been to some pretty dark places during this project, obviously. And my first two poems hit hard, I hope. But by the end, I hope to convince you that we don't always have to be sombre when we conjure the dead. Who is commemoration for? And what has the poet to do with anything? In his poem, Asphodel, William Carlos Williams says, it is difficult to get the news from poems, yet people die miserably every day for lack of what is found there. Hear me out, for I too am concerned, and every man who wants to die at peace in his bed besides. My first poem is an old Arabic form called the Huzzal, Traditionally, the huzzle is a conversation with a loved one. One of the postgrad students on this project said in their paper, commemoration is about the things that we do to give back dignity and respect to a loved one who was not supposed to die. 
The huzzle is perfect for such a personal response. The form of it is autonomous couplets, the same number of syllables in each line, the end words of each couplet must be the same, the word before them must rhyme in every stanza, and the poet's name should be in the last couplet. And that one you have to be sure you can do right at the beginning, otherwise the whole effect will be lost. It's the day after the Amritsar massacre. The holiest city in the Punjab on the holiest day of the Sikh year. In 1919, the British Army blockaded 20,000 unarmed men and boys into the city square and opened fire until their ammunition gave out. General Dyer wanted to teach them a lesson they would never forget. They had defied his order prohibiting public meetings. At the inquiry, General Dyer was asked what he had been thinking. I think it quite possible that I could have dispersed the crowd without firing, but they would have come back again and laughed, and I would have made what I consider a fool of myself. The five articles of faith that a Sikh must wear and is cremated with are his uncut hair bound in a dasthair, a turban, the kanga, his comb, kara, a bracelet, kachera, underwear, kirpan, knife. Huzzle of morning. Attar of magnolia perfumes the air this morning. Pyres of sheep and myrrh smolder everywhere this morning. Your kanga, with its walnut smell of burnt sugar spice, smoke closing my throat as I comb your hair this morning. Heart leaves of the peepal tree shiver lustrous as silk. We tuck in the ends of your blue duster this morning. Asphodel and lily of the valley hang their heads. I choose the kachera for you to wear this morning. The leaves of the lotus flowers drip droplets of fire. Your kara reflects sunlight as I stare this morning. We do not cry or add to the sounds around us, but we sheathe the blade of your kirpan with care this morning. Water hyacinths line the streets like purple candles. Lily gardens and tulip fields lie bare this morning. We join the procession, and with cashmere gentian and sunrise sprays of black-eyed Susan, we share this morning. My second poem, Noose, Berlin. The rise of the Third Reich. We commemorate to remind ourselves that the role of bystander will not do. We were shown a photograph by the architect Daniel Liebskind. A group of well-dressed people are walking down the street, oblivious as another group of well-dressed people are being herded along the middle of the road. What happened next? 
is such a convulsion in history that it is impossible to comprehend. To shock us into some sort of understanding, architects have used tectonic architecture, inspired by ruptures of the Earth's surface, earthquakes, continental drift, volcanic eruptions. We see this in the memorial to the murdered Jews of Europe. This is in Berlin. Thousands of standing stones rising to nearly five metres high, covering several acres of prime real estate. It's a labyrinth of monoliths and dark alleyways, disorienting and claustrophobic. There are no identifying marks or names to say what it is, and the architect Peter Eisenman wanted to leave it at that. He said, the world is too full of information. He was overruled, so underneath is an information centre full of the stuff of people's lives. I found a photo there of a family at dinner on Seder night, the first night of Passover. This, traditionally, is a time for handing down stories to the new generation of songs, of lively, noisy, vibrant quality. But here, there is only one child. He's at the back. Nobody's looking at him. He's looking anxiously at their faces. The adults who are lost in their own space, lost in their own thoughts. We know what's coming. And we want to shout at them to get out. This poem, I knew right at the outset I had to use the villanelle, which I've never done before and probably won't do again. If you thought the chuzzle was prescriptive... (laughs) Lines must be repeated in every stanza. There are only two rhymes. You end with the two lines you start with, pretty much. Why did I have to use it? It's a perfect form for our subject, constantly going over and over the same old story, not moving forwards, no resolution. I think Stephen Fry said, said it seemed to appeal to poets who were psychologically disturbed. <laughs> Also, Ideas of the Fugue. Song was so important at that time. You have the propaganda songs in the streets outside. The propaganda songs are amazing. They are. They're very good. And the songs of Passover in the room, in this space that they've created for themselves. I knew that the first line of the poem had to be from the Haggadah, the Passover text. Noose. Why is this night different from all other nights? A new song rising in a noose of air as we close the shutters and dim the lights. Hush the boy so that nothing incites this counterpoint chorus. Seek high Victoria. Why is this night different? Jackboots beating time in Potsdamer Platz. Unter den Linden, Wilhelmstrasse, as we close the shutters and dim the lights, muzzle the volkish hymn. The child recites the Seder puzzle with no real answer. Good German music, metric, precise. 
a stretto in steel, sparks on the stair, close the shutters, dim the lights. It's the mark on the doorframe that indicts. It's hard to declare you are unaware why this night is different from all other nights, as they close our shutters and turn out the lights. So finally, who is commemoration for? Monuments are sober and dignified places, places where we stand just right and wear the right hat and think the right things. Are we quiet enough? Is our expression just so? Really, there isn't time to think about who commemoration is for. It is for us. Does it have to be like this? These counter-monuments are designed to provoke. People leap from stone to stone. And I would love to do that, by the way. They're five metres high, and I haven't done it yet. They picnic on them. They play hide-and-seek. They take selfies and post them on Instagram. One blogger, if you Google Yolocaust, you will find him, is so outraged at this behaviour that he has taken these selfies and photoshopped a backdrop of dead bodies from the camps and reposted them, together with the replies of people who recognise themselves, begging for forgiveness. But I say, if this monument is not to be dead space, people should be allowed to express themselves, to run, to shout, to affirm life. As Liebskin says... A memorial which is quiet and unchallenging is good for the birds. The birds will sit on it and that'll be it. We saw at the memorial concert Ravel's work Tombeau was criticised for being too light-hearted. His response? The dead are sad enough in their eternal silence. We commemorate to hear their voices again. So this poem is a retort to our Yolocaust blogger Sometimes you have to forget rules and allow in mystery, uncertainty and doubt. Architecture uses a mathematical principle called perturbation theory. Sometimes there is no perfect answer and you have to do the best you can. What would the stones say? The stones are not just stones after all. And the boy in the photo on Seder night? Perhaps he is here tonight. Song of the Stones. There is a perturbing logic at the heart of me that you don't expect or see. You, with your morals stiff-coated and clenched, crackling with half-cloaked resentment and buttoned-up ideas of how things ought to be. Instead of silence, instead of wearing black and a solemn demeanour, Lose yourself. Invade my space. Lean back. Bear against the bulwark of my own intrusion. The stamp of my ribs. The imprint of my spine. The press of your flesh on mine. The beat of my heart. The continental drift that lifts and folds back the gravel bed of memory. 
And if you've forgotten how or if you never knew, watch carefully. See how the boy bestrides my saddle-backed hips, leaps girders of light, runs my fault lines like a pro. Reaching for the call you cannot hear, shaking the dust from his feet as he goes. Thank you. Hello. It seems inappropriate to say, oh my God, in such a surrounding, but I'm still transfixed and bewitched by what I've heard already in the first half. Such stunning phrases. So somewhat daunting for me to follow, but I'll try. Thankfully, I've done a few more sort of prepared remarks. Um, I'm pleased about that because I'm trying to avoid eye contact with Jenny and Jane in the front row. If, if we are the last supper of poets in the front row, they, they are our deities. Uh, they're front and, front and middle, if you like, uh, as, as the inspiration behind probably much of the writing that you've heard or will hear tonight. So no eye contact for you guys. So thank you to Niall and Catherine and also Kate uh, for giving me the opportunity to be witness and participant in the oral strand of the conference. Uh, thanks also to Susie for her formidable skills of organisation. I think if Susie was in the army, she would be in the logistics corps. <laughs> I'm not sure if we would have a kind of poets corps. Uh, I'm not sure how long they would last necessarily. Uh, but, <laughs> but no, I mean, she's been phenomenally organised. And I think organising poets is like trying to organise cats for a bath. You sort of give up at a certain point and if the cat wants to look bad, it's the cat's fault. So, so thank you so much for keeping us organised. Um, the poem I've written tonight, just a few remarks to contextualise it. I promise the remarks are not longer than the poem. I've come to readings before where people have explained all kinds of obscure phrases and references and then they read the poem and it lasts about 30 seconds. <laughs> so, um, look, obviously the conference, the workshops, uh, focused around music and silence. And the ones I attended were deeply fascinating on so many levels. And it was a real challenge, I think, in the aftermath of those sessions. By, by the way, uh, the oral commemoration strand, what was the date that that started on, Niall? July? Is it July? July? April. So I've probably had the shortest amount of time, you would say, to prepare some written work. I just wanted to put that out there. So... <laughs> so... <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, in all honesty, the real challenge was to come up with something that would give, give sort of credible testimony to all of the wonderful and fascinating and stimulating ideas, and to do that in a way that sort of respected the nature of the subject matter itself, that being war. And, and why that respect? Because, as you know, the subject of war is fraught with possibilities for unintended insult and bruised sensitivities, and war often means taking a side. And what follows on from that is the poets themselves must take a side or a stance or a viewpoint. Now, this issue of taking a side has befuddled many writers, uh, befuddled many writers in the Northern Irish tradition or people who speak with the accent that I carry. And lots of Northern Irish writers have tried to view the troubles through the prism of myth and ancient classics, especially Homer. Uh, I'm not clever enough to do this tonight. I'm not clever enough to write a villanelle. And certainly not clever enough to come up with pre-prepared materials either. 
Uh, I was saying to Mariah, the only thing I came with was a packet of mints. And one of her chums said, you're handing out mints, as in mince beef. So I will articulate and enunciate more clearly. Uh, but you know, as I was saying, I, you know, I won't be doing that. What I'll be doing is taking a, a trigger, if you like, from Jonathan Dove's session on music and him talking about his own work and his own use of secondary voices and personas in his opera, his use of people speaking and singing about something who were people of the background, the off-centre, the sidelines and the marginalised. Now, the, re the reason I've taken that as a stimulus and trigger is because when it comes to my own experience of war, or the near civil war of Northern Ireland, uh, Child of the Troubles and all that, is that I, I never actually experienced anything directly. Um, I, li I literally was one of those people who was either a minute early and a minute late and therefore avoided being involved in any serious danger or conflict. And, and with that in mind, um, what I plan to read tonight is, is a poem which is, which is very much, I suppose, based around me having this sense of luck or good fortune that I evaded much of that trouble. Um, so to, tur to turn to the poem itself, um, it's based around something anecdotal, very simply. Uh, my second name is derived from a soldier, a soldier who in the 1970s, I really am that old, um, came to the maternity hospital, the hospital that I was born in, and the generators had gone out that evening because of, as you imagine, strife elsewhere in the city. He was able to return the generators to power, and I, being the only boy born that night among 12 girls, uh, he, I don't know, that's, that's no indication of any success with women in the future, so, so don't take any meaning into that. Um, but he asked my mother if uh, he could, uh, if I could be named after him. Now, as you can imagine, in the 1970s, that was a rather uh, problematic, almost toxic request. Women who affiliated or flirted or associated with soldiers were tarred and feathered and ostracized from their community. But my mother thought it was a, a fitting and appropriate tribute to him to uh, call me Daniel, Patrick Daniel, after Daniel. Now, I only found this story out a few years ago, actually just before my mother passed away. Um, it being such a, a terrible family secret because of the stigma and taboo. So I thought tonight would be a nice opportunity for me to maybe uh, take that as subject matter. And if not a villanelle, um, it's probably more a kind of poetic honorarium to uh, that particular person and, and I suppose the contribution they made to, to my life. So the poem's called Daniel. If I read it slowly, I'm not trying to import any kind of gravitas. I just know the Northern Irish accent is really hard to understand. So, so that's why I'm reading slowly. Oh, by the way, the first line is stolen from Jonathan Dove, um, a day like any other from one of his operas. Um, that's called found poetry. Ten years ago, that was called plagiarism. <laughs> now it's called, it's called found poetry. So, <laughs> so uh, Daniel. A day like any other, a day of rither, a day of rithers slithering under bridges, a day of traffic slithering over rivers, a day of happenings happening elsewhere, the whole Auden, Bruegel, fallen angel thing of the dull miraculous, of people stepping over life, lifelessness, the epic business of going about the business of market, bread, milk, provisions. 
Nothing, no one is thinking aftermath, consequence. No one is thinking presence, hereafter. No one is thinking how time lengthens, shortens in the absence of a sound. No one sentimental yet about the snow buffeting the glass of the hospital ward. No one troubled by the cold that seizes gears and stutters circuits. There is work to do, you see. Walls to build, roadblocks to attend, threats to send to your government, letters to send to a friend. There are buildings to be torn down. There are buildings resuming life, people filling landings, stairwells, floors with the clatter of pens, sample cases, the workings of vast machines that spill linen, nicotine, bitumen. But let us settle amongst this quietude, this din on a woman, a man. Let us remove our shoes, our hats, wash our hands as we enter memory, cross the threshold of here, there, now, then. She's 21, and this is her third child. He's 21, and he's worried about rent, a crib, a lack of room. Night is coming, and there's rage across the city. A lampstand flickers failure, and there is darkness, gloom. Let us hold our gaze. Let the sight of this be relentlessly bright, relentlessly lit with candles, wicks, the torches of willing nurses, willing porters. Let us imagine there is something of the high wire in the circus in the way the orderlies, doctors, matrons are looking at the ceiling fans as they slowly drain to nothing, looking at the phosphorus of the two heartbeats as they blip and fade. Now life blurs, judders. Someone is saying yes, someone is saying no, Someone says yes and yes and yes again. It's 13 hours to morning and this child is listless, blue, but don't despair. The child makes it. The mother and father make it too. If we go further, we could even say the children round the bed also survive and the whole country is somehow still alive beyond that night of chill and broken signals. You see, another man borders the frame is working in the eye's corner, leaning a rifle against a window pane, turning his back because he sees no enemy. The mother remembers only fragments, that his hands were nimble as a seamstress, that the wires and valves began to thrum and gain, and the black diaphragm of the see-through box swished and swirled, and the child reddened, unfurled his body, breath surrendered. Of course, this is half told, half said, half remembered, and the truth is always someone else's plunders. And don't poets love the local and the universal? And this drama of a mother, father, child and soldier is a stoneless peach, a stream to suckle on that's rich with the darting fish of meaning. It's said the past is mostly standing on a mountain and looking out to see the mountain you just climbed mirror on the horizon. Maybe this metaphor is too deep, too far, too wide. I think instead the past is like those childish magazines of princess, prince, in which you cut them out and then their clothes and stand them up and hang about their shoulders, rags, robes, as they totter on their tiny paper feet. I have my saviour then in Daniel and hang upon his body a holster, bandolier, a medal of St. Christopher, 
I hang on him a future. I hang on him the puzzlement, confusion of someone loaded down with ammunition, history, gun, being the one who turned the spark, the flow, the current on. His name went 40 years unspoken. My name went 40 years as indentation. Now it is a kind of proclamation, a word dragged from the margins of the page and printed down without shame or repercussion. And now he's real, I'm real. You have to wonder his age, his place, or if I was just an interlude or even made it into story. But don't forget I said work was being done. There were other battles, other children. What I call alchemy, others say is fraud. After 40 years, it's hard to know who was lying, born, den. I had an uncle who often said, remember the godless believe in the same God. Maybe he saved me, maybe I saved him. Saved him from what we were told we were becoming. Paper torn, paper thin. Maybe it was him that hanged on my slim shoulders and mantle. Maybe it was him that hanged on the moment, a form of blessing, a form of benediction. I know looking for such answers is much like coming upon a darkened building, a broken fuse, like rummaging for tools to snap to equal perils, to equal traps. What will you call him? Daniel asked as my mother lifted me like a ladle. When she tells the tale, she tells the listener, the soldier also had a son, firstborn, crying for him on the other side of the ocean like a king in waiting. She explains it seemed only fair to take his name, reward him, make the night a blameless blanketing of snow on the ledges and the verges. Who knows then what happened when winter passed, spring came, summer blossomed. Another tour. There was trouble in Oman that year and restlessness in Palestine. My mother and father had another child on the way, this time hoping for a daughter. Romantics would turn now to an image of streetlights flickering, sirens blaring, a mercy dash, the sense of the gallant soldier. Somewhere, somehow in Damascus, a child lived. Somewhere in Muscat, a child gasped and gasped again. I can't promise that. I can't be sure about his tally and the ledger, where the angel on one shoulder whispering good was done, and the devil on the other whispering that peace comes only when the accountants all agree that wins have doubled into losses. I didn't earn the right to praise or slander anyone. All I can say is that if I found him, I would take him, Daniel, in my arms and count his fingers, thumbs. I would put my nose against his head and breathe him in. I'd want to call him son, warn him, make sure he'd packed for all eventualities and that he'd know to call, write, send signs that he was well. I would try to fill the outline, crayon in the space of his coming, his going. I'd try to reassemble him like a toy that ached for fixing, like a ghost that tries on shoes and walks unsteady like a newborn. I'd hold my hand on his as he steadied the pliers and the breakers, mop his brow as he went about the surgery of mending the diodes and busted resistors. I'd let him take his victory, let him shy away in his fatigues and crumpled greens, greys, flee from the returning light, jolting in its illuminescence. I'd let him leave the scene, tell those who would interrogate that I never saw him, never knew him. I would carry on my tongue his name like a lost wandering and seeing in the haze an oasis, 
a chance to drink, a chance to rest before the blasts on the horizon resume their warnings. Thank you. Well, first of all, I'd like to say a big thank you to all of you for being here tonight. And especially a thank you to Kate and Neil and Catherine for the great privilege of being part of the post-war series. To my fellow poets, Mariah, Sue and Pat, and to Harris Manchester College for the use of their beautiful chapel. I'm going to be reading some extracts from the work I've created for the residency called Tenta. It uses the Bayer tapestry as a template for exploring memory and marginalisation and the crises in commemoration that can lead us to an inability to engage with the consequences of war, such as enforced migration. It also responds to two visits I made to the site of the Battle of Hastings, a recent visit to research the tapestry, and an earlier visit made with my mother, who died just before this residency began. Tenta is both the person who stretches a cloth or the framework on which fabric is held taut in order for it to be worked on. I'm going to start with the opening piece that delves into all of the roots of the word commemoration and its complexities, and then goes straight into the central poem of Tenta called Et Elfgiver. Just a little bit of background to that poem. It's now thought that the Bayer tapestry was embroidered in English workshops by anonymous women embroiderers. Elfgiva is the only woman named in the tapestry. The slightly eccentric Latin that you will hear is all taken from inscriptions stitched into the tapestry. And then I'll read another two or three poems after that. Memoration. Mamor, Old English. Deep thought, deep inwards, as a tree gives way, or the side of a hill from beneath. To leave this behind, each of us going back far enough. Mimeren, Dutch, to ponder, muse, as you follow the path down, cognate with Old English, memorian, or Middle English, mimeren to be undecided or waver. A thread, bright as gorse, jerks you on. You do not mean to remember. For sale signs on your family home, to walk out of each moment as it flares bright as a stuck frame. Some stain or residue, some taint of red, crossing into blue, follows each turn of your head as you... Mamron, proto-Germanic, to take care, worry. This partial memory, shrinking back beneath its moss, crumbling. From proto-Indo-European, mare, smear, to think about, be mindful, producing something... You start to clear the house. It's impossible to throw anything away. You build a tower out of boxes. Hang it with lights. Mamaren, 
Middle English also means to hesitate. Pacing this field cautiously, a place for driving to, to think through, to measure your claim. The dead are thought about with care. They retreat and stiffen to a list, at first a little pliant, soft at the edges, but hardening to a hole you cannot enter. Still, a moment of breaking and entering. Memoriam, Old English, to deliberate, plan out, design, an act of shaping, finishing, stones dug in to make a garden, but something left over, a root. Commemorare, Latin, to bring to remembrance, a stag cornered in a garden with a bloody tongue, nail driven in, a tight weave, and in northern France, the blue gleam of a knife at the back of your head. Commemorate. English from 1590, to call to remembrance, to walk out in the same cold fog. You do not mean to find her. Some stain or residue, that taint of red, individual memory persisting into public grief. A trace of original colour you match as best you can. Something about coming before to this car park with her. Commemorate, English. To recall and mark by doing or producing something, a passage through time, mothholed and embroidered by desire, the restorer restitches using the same holes but different coloured thread. When was it you came here with her? When she could still walk, and that wooden soldier recalled her father. Commemorate, English, to be mindful together. This part of southern England could be northern France. A white window frame looks like an edge of grief you tiptoe back from. Something prickles, grazes your skin, a news story, refugees in the back of a refrigerated lorry. It is the slash of a knife to claim a few feet of space in the suffocating ice. Two children no more than eight or nine, throw stones to preserve a makeshift shelter of plaited branches, each red and blue freckle, minute particles of an earlier design. Et Elfgiva. It starts with Edward Rex and the noise and the arguing, 20 of us sitting at a bench, Dame Bav watching us with orange eye and black claw, to start on the first panel laid on a board, on trestles so close together, no gap between us. Our needles mad with blood, stab stitch, wild with missing sons, to fill in curves of horses and ships, in honour of a bastard. Ubi Harold, Dux Anglorum et Sui Milites, Equitant ad Washam. None of us can read, but the king of birds bows to Harold. We argue over who gets the name. H makes a strong man with sturdy legs sitting on a throne. 
Dame Bav cocks her head and clicks her tongue. Blue stinks and sticks in the throat, making us sob or laugh. Blue piss, blue spit. But bruises come up green and today we start for real. It is great praise to work in wool, she says. Colour of the red breast and the dawn and the oak. It's forbidden for us to use ink, she says. But we may sew. Hick apprehend it, widow Harold. Shears at waist and us overseen by old Bav, piss and bark and ash. Nuntii will elmi. By rushlight mixing to ensure he stands out. Hick wainit nuntius ad wilgamum ducem. His hammer hand is heavy. We lay monstrous paws beneath his seat. A sword carelessly couching his W slices Dukem in two. And here the Kentish hind stands in stainless wool, our invisible hands. This English art to tell of our own defeat. Kentish women trusted with his great victory and already no one remembers which is the right story. Even Odo, cat's paw. And though the design is given and we must follow, the border is ours and what's left over. Only three times a woman is laid out on the board. Ubi, unus, clericus, et elfgiver. Once for a devil who wriggles her hips. Once for killing her sons on the field and once for tearing her daughters, but only one named. He puffs and puffs, squatting in his stinking ditch until three times a womb is pricked onto the cloth. So while they divide our portions, we split needles from bone and fashion an axe for a naked man and our chopping block. All worked in stem stitch, no leaves or fruit. Ubi, Harold, Sacramentum, Fecit Willemo Duki, the root of it, but no leaves or fruit. Hic Harold Dux Versus Est ad Anclicum Terum, backwards we stitch. Et Hic Defunctus Est, we squabble over Edward's corpse, not for the soft old body, but who will work God's hand, and which, the pale God of veils? or a scythe lord of the field, but Bav's red tongue outlined in gold, her storm horse bears the bastard. Hick, Dederant, Haroldo, Corona, Regis. Our bone needles splinter. H is a man who reaches after. Between cat's paws, prick and pounce, a star appears, Isti, Mirant, Stella. The design is given. We wring our hands. A tear in the fabric adds chaos to the pattern, but ghosts fall quietly to our bloody needles. Harold. H is a man who reaches. These bloody needles sow their story. Hic nawis anglica wenti interum willemi ducis are the same needles to embroider our shrouds and winding sheets. How we searched each mutilated body, 10,000 or more. 
Greedy to find a familiar ring or a chain, Edith, once swan neck, now purple and ragged in the mouth, stumbled with the rest, said she recognised the king in that slashed turnip grin. We turned our backs, prayed better fortune for our own. Our king's own mother begs for his body. The bastard says he must be buried by the shore to teach him to guard it better. We stitch into the margin other memories, ghost ships to haunt an island, unrigged and unmanned, our threadbare seas stitched with the same wool as strange ships carrying blue and gold horses. We tell of our own defeat, but they are haunted by our margins. Hic exeunt cabale de nawibus. Now this time of year a wet wind calls us, a bitter clay smothers our field. To grow erect, he likes his drink, a sip of red. Old man barley needs his coaxing or he'll not swell. Now he chokes on blood. Keep your mind on your work, says Bav. It all belongs to the bastard now. Hick, coquita, caro hick, Mr. Averant, ministry. Nothing grows, but as meat is rotten, nothing fat but corruption. Hick fecarum, prandium. The green weed runs dry. So the dame brings weld yellow to bite the cloth. But it's the long go-round shapes bleeds the heart because of, or missing after, as Odo Catspaw orders the story, bolting now, and only our needles to hold it down. Hick, Domus, Incenditur. We notch the child's hand tight to its mother so they can run faster, a pair of fighting birds, her fingernails stitched in a perfect O around his wrist, gall to bind her curse, wind it in our sheet. The wolf takes even the smallest lamb. Hic milites exierunt de hestenga, et venerunt ad prelium contra haroldum regae. At the approach of battle, our fierce needles work faster. The great horses raise their azure heads. A little ass in motley laughs, and so it starts. Twin lambs bite on each other's tongues. A hare leaps into open jaws. Featherless bird for outspread wing. Bladdard's war cry soars. Hick, cacillerant, simul, angli, et franchi in prelio. Spears and arrows tear through the divide, splitting each margin. Furious birds peck at yellow horses. Two brothers killed. But now we plant another. A fine red horse, broken as smashed straw, falls against the tabby weave, tears the sky. Hic est Willem Dux. There the youngest falls, between club moss and madder root. No escape from each other. Twenty of us to finish it in a place like hell. Bav throws back her hood, head stained red from raw malt, wails for more blood. 
Heads sewn apart from fallen bodies, horses snipped at the knee, linen spoiled by raw fingers, but it's not done yet. At Franky, pugnant, at Cacirant, Quierant cum Haroldo, shirts ripped from warm bodies and still our sons, black feathers scatter from the dame's wide sleeves, and at the end, we refuse. Bab jabs at her at our hands with her needle, pierces, penetrates the field. Hick, Harold Rex, interfectus est. Her needle sticks in his eye. Now we are all watchful, the invaders and the invaded, awake for the house thief's return. Spectral ships nuzzle our shore. We put honey loaves at the door for wolves. Our half-cakes are for us alone. We ghost-stitch a land, changed as our skins. Our ossiths, holy women, lead us blindly in its circles, their heads bundled beneath their arms. We hide slivers of oak between our legs. The old laws are gone. This is our new vernacular. Our new husbands moan in broken English and piss out wine-coloured splinters. And all of us turn nervously to the shore. Many of the pieces in Tenta explore the tapestry as a political object. And of course, in the wake of the referendum, you'll be aware that France has finally and not innocently agreed to let the tapestry cross the channel. And the irony of the fact that even while we've been commemorating the 14 to 18 war, we've been unable to find a way to respond to the refugees on our doorstep. The next poem I'm going to read is made from found text for Neil. <laughs> Um, taken from the Human Rights Watch report 2017. And this documents the use of pepper spray against child refugees. No research exists into the longer-term medical effects of using pepper spray on children because its inventors never conceived of this use. The words from 30 different reports are stitched together where shared words overlap using the same technique as the stem stitch in which the tapestry is embroidered. And this will then be followed by two final short poems. A continuous line of stitches. Pepper spraying happens nearly every night. The police come up to us while we are sleeping under the bridge. The police come. They spray all over our food, our clothes, our sleeping bags. The police spray us in the face. Sometimes they wake us up. They say, allez, allez, they say, but where can we go? We were walking on the road. They spray us from the vehicles as they drive. It was the daytime, and they came in a van. They say, go. Go. One of them caught me in the eyes. The spray also went into my nose. It was about midnight I came to get food. The police were there. You cry. You feel very hot in your face is burning. It feels like you're on fire. It closes up your throat. You feel like it might be better to kill yourself. 
Then the police sprayed us and we ran. We fell down as we ran into the woods and the police laughed at us. He said, this is normal for us. It's part of our life. The police came. They took everything, all our blankets and sleeping bags. The police took them. They spray us and take all of our stuff. Every two or three days they do this. They'll come and take our blankets and water. This is not the first time. It happens all the time. Every day they take our sleeping bags. Sometimes our shoes, our jackets, they take our clothes. We try to change the place where we sleep. It's very cold. We don't have any blankets. We can't stay in the woods. It's not the first time. They took everything. Go, go, they say. Hush. A hill beneath and a filled in door. This bench, its damp wooden flowers. A dead tree stripped clean, and time fucking stops. You reach a corner of you are there. You are there. An edge of grief. You can park in an empty tongue. The fields are empty. That's near enough. You expect you have come here to honour the dead. An open field looks like battlefield words. Gone. Absent. Missing. You come to hold it in memory, but it becomes spongy underfoot. You do not mean to remember her, the time you brought her here. A list in a notebook of useful words. Blank, nil, null, hush, hush, shh, shush, sodden ground. But your body remembers, so you try to follow even as... It is hardening and solidifying, becomes a whole, no longer possible to enter nor be held by it, nil, null, hush, shh, shush. You cannot enter nor explore its spaces, nor the dead in their apophatic silence. That gap in words. Listen. Hush. And in my final poem, there are no words. There are just marks to show where words once were, their names. The poem is a silent poem, which lasts for the duration of the time that it took to read and erase the names of 74 refugees who died, attempting to make the journey from Calais to the UK between 2014 and 2018, while we've been commemorating the 14 to 18 war. They were nearly all refugees from war zones in which the UK has some level of current involvement. These and earlier conflicts, their impact and their enforced migrations form a continuing thread, a pattern of erased names and their traces across the generations. 
The epigraph, which I will start with for this poem, is from 1819, Charles Stoddart making drawings of the Bayard Tapestry and recording damage, which was later repaired. Traces of the design exist by means of the holes where the needle has passed. In many places, minute particles of the different coloured threads were still retained. Traces. Thank you.